we're just to here to cause chaos. chaos. I don't know what happened there. I did a great job. Oh, okay. I really think there's lag. Maybe <laughs> we should stop trying to do it at the same time. You should. Maybe we should try that thing again where we, one of us says one word. That was worse. So, Sam, let's update the people on our lives. <laughs> you mean how we both have moved and got a new jobs in the last few weeks? Yes, well, you just started your job. That's pretty exciting. Yes, I started my first day at my PhD program yesterday. Mm-hmm. I got a training to remind me not to sniff chemicals. It was a great <laughs> time. Look at you. Yeah. Already on your way to becoming a doctor. Not even sniffing any chemicals. We'll see. Mm -hmm. And I am learning how to program. So that's been going. I try not to feel things about the fact that your title is engineer. <laughs> I'm a hell of an engineer. How dare you? No. You can't take that. <laughs> I deserve it. I earned it. That is a microaggression against me and my people. Next, you're going to say that me drinking apple-flavored fruscato Don't. wine is <laughs> That is like... also an offense to me, my people. <laughs> like, you know what? Maybe Cali-style burritos with french fries in them are an offense to my people. This is an offense to no one. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> I said that while showing her the burrito I'm actively eating right now. <laughs> Maybe the offense to my people is that you still don't know how good cheese curds are. I do know how good cheese curds are. I've had them. This is a burrito <laughs> with french fries in it. <laughs> Alright, moving on. For reference, because it is 7.20 at night in California and me and Ellen both have full-time jobs now, we are recording at night, which is relatively new for us. It means that I'm probably going to end up eating in more episodes than I used to. It's also probably going to mean that somehow they'll become more chaotic. <laughs> yeah, I'm really- I'm a lot at night. Guess who Sorry. we're learning about this week, Sam? Do you want me to actually guess, or is- No, you won't I saw guess. on the drive. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's Shirley Chrissom! Yay! <laughs> the first black female person to run for president heck Ooh. yeah I'm so curious, how far did she get like oh that'll come up okay. i will tell you cool but we're gonna start with the past so the past what we don't do that on this history podcast <laughs> the beginning is a good place to start for any story and the beginning is usually in the past is she still alive no okay Alright. <laughs> Shirley Chrissom was born on November 30th, 1924. Her dad was from Guyana. His name is Charles Christopher St. Hill. So, you know, her last name was St. Hill at the time. And her mom was from Barbados. And her name was Ruby Seal. So Wait, they were both... Quick, yeah, they were before both... we get into the story, I actually forgot an update that I really need to tell you. Oh, what is it? My mom texted me today because she listened to our episode and Larry the text just said, I still have the teeth. <laughs> no context, nothing. Just the words, I still have the teeth. 
<laughs> to which I replied, what? Because I wasn't actively listening to our episode like she was. <laughs> and then she replied, I'm listening to your episode and I still have the teeth. And then I said, I did not need to know that. And she did not reply after that. <laughs> As of this filming, I have not gotten a text from my mom, but I'm assuming she still has the teeth. <laughs> My mom seemed like almost offended that I said on the podcast that she had gotten rid of them. It's a mom point of pride to have, you know, a box of your children's teeth. I hate it. <laughs> My future children can have their own teeth. You're gonna give them to them? Honestly, I'm probably gonna trash them like a normal person. <laughs> That's teeth. not normal. <laughs> okay. Anyway. You can return to the story, I just really need to tell you that. Yeah, okay, so both of Shirley's parents had recently immigrated to New York. So, you know, she's first generation, and she had three younger sisters. So that's nice. Her dad worked in a burlap sack factory, because that was a thing. I mean, I'm sure it's still a thing somewhere. Yeah. It's not in the U.S. anymore, yeah. probably. And her mom was a seamstress. And if you put those facts together, you figure out that they were poor. Yeah. Yep. Black factory worker seamstress. Yeah. But in this time, her dad was a big supporter of this dude named Marcus Garvey, who is apparently a controversial activist. He's so cool. Yeah, he founded the Universal Negro Improvement Association which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. uh, and her dad was also really big into like union worker rights. So she's already getting that like political background at this point, but they were still poor. So uh, in November, 1929, when Shirley's five years old, she goes to live with her grandmother in Barbados and- But she, she was born in the US and that's the important part for becoming president. Exactly. <laughs> But she had a great time in Barbados. A quote from her time is, Granny gave me strength, dignity, and love. I learned from an early age that I was somebody. I didn't need the Black Revolution to tell me that. Good for her. Yeah. Already an I love confident women make confident women. <laughs> there we go. That's our gift to the world. We will spread our confidence. You gonna make women? Oh god. I meant more like inspired. I meant birth. <laughs> oh, okay. Cool. Well, you know, there's multiple interpretations. But anyway, so Shirley lived on her grandmother's farm. She attended this one-room schoolhouse. And she was also witnessing the Barbados workers and anti-colonial independence movements. So, you know, that's good for a young girl. In 1934, head back to the U.S. And one little side note was that as a result of her schooling in Barbados, is she always had a West Indian accent. Ooh, which That's going to be hard, though, when you're running president. Yeah, I don't think that helped her. But in her 1970 autobiography, which is called Unbought and Unbossed, this phrase comes up a lot. She wrote, years later, I would know what an important gift my parents had given me by seeing to it that I had my early education in the strict, traditional British-style school of Barbados. 
if I speak and write easily now, that early education is the main reason. Good for her for acknowledging yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Education is the key. There's actually a lot of studies on that. Mm-hmm. Some education is good, more education is better. And educated women actually empower their like communities two or three times more than like educated men because mm -hmm. educated women will go back to their villages and then educate more people while educated men mostly just like worry about themselves yeah and there's also a lot of like direct correlations between educated mothers and educated children but so she's back in the u.s now we're up to 1939 and she goes to this girls high school in bedford stavitson this is an important place that will also come up a lot. So this is a historically black neighborhood in North Brooklyn. And the school itself was highly regarded and uh, very integrated. And she stayed in the Brooklyn area. She went to Brooklyn College. In 1946, she got her Bachelor of Arts. And she was great in college. She won prizes for debate. She was part of the Delta Sigma Theta sorority. Hey! Yeah, sorority. And she was part of the Harriet Tubman Society. That's really cool. I don't know what that is, but I like Harriet Tubman. Exactly. <laughs> that, we should do an episode about her. Are you not going to tell me what the Harriet Tubman Society I'm is? I'm going to tell her, tell you more about this. Okay. Anyway, as a member of the Harriet Tubman Society, she advocated for inclusion, specifically with the integration of <laughs> black soldiers in the military during World War II. Uh, there is a lot of, like literature about how Langston Hughes especially has a great poem where he's talking about how come I have to fight the Nazis and then just come home here and get Jim Crow. So yeah. that was a problem. Anyway, she was also advocating for the addition of courses that focused on African American history. And she was also big into the involvement of more women in the student government. That's another thing that comes up a lot is she's really big into representation and like political engagement. She did that and then after graduation she starts working as a teacher's aide in Harlem. And it's around this time that she meets Conrad Chrisom in the late 1940s. He was a Jamaican immigrant and also a private investigator who specialized in negligent based lawsuits. I was about to ask if there was any rules about like the first lady or first man having to be from America, but then I remembered who our last first lady was and I didn't say anything. Yeah, yeah, that's not an issue. <laughs> <laughs> they were married in 1949 in this large West Indian wedding. So lovely. And meanwhile, Shirley is teaching in a nursery school while she's earning her master's in elementary education from Columbia. And she gets that in 1952. And by 1953, she's the director of a nursery in Brooklyn and in a childcare center in Manhattan. So she's killing it. Yeah. Yeah. And also in 1953, we get to the good stuff. Okay. Ooh, this is good stuff. Yeah, this is when she really enters the world of politics. Intrigue. So, exactly. <laughs> so there was this dude named Wesley Mac Holder, and he was trying to elect this other dude named Louis Flagg Jr. 
did the bench to be the first black judge in Brooklyn. So there's this whole campaign and she joined the campaign and the campaign eventually expanded into the Bedford Stavitson political league, also known as BSPL because that's a mouthful. <laughs> and it pushed candidates to support civil rights. It fought against racial discrimination in housing. It sought to improve economic opportunities and services in Brooklyn and Chrism's personal goals were increasing representation and engagement of minority groups. And this actually caused her some trouble with BSPL because in 1958, she clashed with one of the, the leader holder because she was trying to give female members of the group more input in decision-making and, you know, sexism. <laughs> yeah. So she also joined mostly white political groups like the Brooklyn Democrats Club and recruited more people of color into local politics. So she was really good at that like grassroots local level uh, of engagement. And by 1959, she was an educational consultant for a division of daycare. So basically she was an authority on the issue of early education and child welfare. A very important field that is like super underpaid and underappreciated. Absolutely. Got I it. now live across the street from a preschool. I appreciate it a lot more. Yeah, kind of loud, work but I taking, like them. <laughs> the work of taking care of children is just exhausting. It is. Uh, I mean, some, sometimes I take care of like one or two kids per day and I need to sleep for like a week. I can't imagine doing that every single day. Mm-hmm. God, most people don't even get paid. Yeah. Well, there's a time. <laughs> my cousin with the baby just like randomly FaceTimed me like an hour ago. It was great because I got like some unadulterated baby time, but like she was constantly like making sure he didn't fall or Aww. eat something he shouldn't or like <laughs> bash his head in on something. And I was like, wow, <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> well, this is taking a turn from your, you're going to birth some confident women. Oh, I mean, that is how you make like empowered women and make empowered women. However, <laughs> making people looks exhausting and I've had a really front row seat to it recently. <laughs> okay. I have a lot of opinions. Yes. I'm kind of tired. <laughs> Try and keep me on track. Good luck. Back to Shirley. Okay, I'm going to go back to my burrito. Of course. 1960, she joined the Unity Democrat Club, which we're going to abbreviate to UDC, which was led by some dude from her former elect flag group. Uh, his name was Thomas R. Jones. And this group was like mostly middle class. It was racially integrated and it had women in leadership. So you had to think she's finally like, finally, I found a good group. No. <laughs> it was better. What did they do? It, it, it was better. Anyway. Really? Because that intro made me think that there was going to be like, some sexual assault allegations coming up. Nothing that bad. Okay. <laughs> anyway. So the group campaigned for Jones to get an assembly seat, which he lost in 1960. But he won two years later in 62. And mm. he became Brooklyn's second black assemblyman. So Nice. Yeah. That was way more... 
the tone you were giving me made me think that this wasn't gonna go that well uh it gets worse okay so in 1964, Jones got a judicial appointment. So Chrisom is like, well, it's my time. And she runs for his seat. And then the UDC decided that they didn't want to support her because sexism. I know. Rude. They've got all these women in leadership, but they're not doing anything. Uh, they were yeah. so close. So she went ahead and appealed directly to women voters. And especially with her role as the Brooklyn president of Key Women of America. So she was going out directly to the people. And she won! Oh my well, goodness! Yeah, well, her first she, try? Yeah, so she won the primary, which that in itself was a pretty big thing. And then she dominated the general election. Because, you know, Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like whoever wins the Democratic primary there just automatically wins, right? Yeah, yeah, basically. So she was an assembly member from 1965 1968. And some of her big causes was she argued against requiring English in the state literacy test, holding that, quote, just because a person functions better in his native language is no sign a person is illiterate, which makes logical sense. Yeah, that very progressive, though, because I don't even think today, like, you can like most literacy tests in america still require english yeah that's some institutional racism right there yeah so she was already you know fighting the good fight in 1966 she was a leader in the push by the statewide council of elected negro democrats for black representation so basically she was like a leader in one of the key committees in the assembly and Oh, she also got unemployment benefits for domestic workers. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, she sponsored the introduction of the SEEK program, which was Search for Education, Elevation, and Knowledge. And basically what this did was it provided disadvantaged students the chance to enter college while receiving remedial education. So, also good stuff. And in 1968, in August, she was elected as the Democrat National Committee woman from New York State. So she's, you know, getting up there in the politics world. Does that mean she has to, like, go and be one of the delegates who, like, chooses who's president at the Electoral College? You know what? I don't know. Maybe? But I didn't see that anywhere. Uh, When you say delegate for the Democratic Convention, I assume that she gets to, like, vote on who gets to be the candidate for president well i said that she was a committee woman which i think is different but anyway i don't know if that's different honestly me neither 1968 things get back to being exciting so the new york 12th district had recently been redrawn and it was like now focusing on bedford stavidson So everyone was super pumped because they knew it meant that Brooklyn was going to get its first black representative. Some other guy named Adam Powell had already been the first black New York Congress representative, but this was going to be from Brooklyn. So New York and their opinions on neighborhoods. Yes. (laughs) And everyone saw the way when the wind was blowing. And the former white incumbent, 
ran for re-election in a different district. She's <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not even going to try with that. <laughs> Wait, how is that allowed? I think that the when the district was redrawn... Was his house not in the district anymore? No. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> oh, gerrymandering. <laughs> Have I ever told you how gerrymandered my district back home is? How gerrymandered is your district back home, Sam? So, my district back home is majoritively an area in, like, Mid-Wilshire, which is a neighborhood, not my neighborhood, because my, like, two-block radius that I live in is a single, like, donut hole inside of another district that's attached to this other district way off, like, on the other side of town. Interesting. Yeah, that sounds sketchy as hell. Right? So, I was working for a congressional campaign in high school, and I was it was like my very first time voting, and I was really confused when I got there and found out that the woman I had been working for wasn't on my ballot, because, like, <sighs> I, I was working with people who lived, like, three blocks away from me, so I was like, I thought we lived in this district, and they were like, we do live in this district, and I looked it up, and I was like, I don't live in this district. <laughs> You fool. I live in the two-block radius of another district. <laughs> Man, how, how didn't you know that, Sam? Wasn't there an, an obvious difference between your two blocks and the, uh, and the entire area surrounding it? <laughs> when I decided to try and go to the Naval Academy, I had to like go to my congresswoman for an interview to like get a nomination. And so I had to drive to the other side of town to the woman who's actually my congresswoman. <laughs> She's like, you had no idea how inconvenient it was. <laughs> okay, back to the story. Just I live in a really gerrymandered spot. Yeah, yeah. I don't even okay. know what the point is either, but that's a whole other thing. Anyway, so Shirley's running for the U.S. House of Representatives. Her campaign slogan is unbought and unbossed. This comes up a lot, as I've said. So, first off, she defeats the two black opponents in the Democratic primary. So now it's just the general election. And she's against this dude named James Farmer, who, he was a pretty big deal. He was the former director of the Congress of Racial Equality. So, you know, big into the civil rights movement. But he was with the Liberal Party, which was like a center-left party. So, like, the Republicans, like, low-key supported him. Oh, so the Republicans just didn't even try to, like, put their own guy in the oh, ring no, here. Oh, no, no, they, they didn't even throw their hat in. They're just cool. like, we like this guy slightly better. <laughs> this guy is a white man. No, no. Oh, he wasn't? I totally thought he was. He was the director of the Congress of Racial Equality. I clearly wasn't listening that carefully. Oh my god. <laughs> Do all this research. Anyway. I, it's it's 730. <laughs> 7.45 so, actually. She won the general election and this was a big upset. That's okay. a, yeah. Yeah, kind of like when AOC beat Crowley. Mm-hmm. It was like establishment Democrat. As a result, she was the first black woman elected to Congress, and she was also the only woman in her freshman class of representatives. 
Oh, that makes my heart hurt. I know. So it's got to be so uncomfortable. And I don't like that. They probably made her like walk a floor to go to the bathroom or something like that because Uh, there were no other women around. Well, I'm sure there were other women, you know, in. Yeah, but like the freshmen all get like office together. Oh. Oh, but even though she had succeeded in getting herself into Congress like a boss, she was then assigned the House Agricultural Committee. Okay. That symbol. She's from Brooklyn. That is utterable. Yeah, so she was understandably pretty pissed about that. Yeah. And then for reasons I don't fully understand, she went to the Rebbe Menachem Schneerson, <laughs> who is a very big deal. <laughs> like, you can't laugh, Ellen. <laughs> Sorry. Just, I don't know how she knew the Rebbe. Everyone knows the Rebbe, haven't you ever? Like, you know Rebbe's. They, everyone knows the Rebbe. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> anyway, so she went to him and she's like, listen, I'm just pretty upset about this. I feel so insulted. And then the Rebbe, in all his wisdom, said that she should use the surplus food to help the poor and hungry. And she's like, yes. So No, this is going to be good. She's going <laughs> to piss off some people. Yeah, she is. So Shirley works to expand the food stamps program. Heck yeah. Damn, girl. She's also critical in the formation of the Special Supplemental Nutritional Program for Women, Infants, and Children. SNAP! Yeah. Wait. Oh. I saw it abbreviated as WIC. Oh. I'm assuming this is the same program I know of, which I've heard of as SNAP, but... Anything that gives nutrition to women, infants, and children is good in my book. I agree. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Basically, she, you know, single-handedly saves a bunch of poor babies from starvation. But she also credited the Rabbi Schneerson for the fact that, quote, so many poor babies now have milk and poor children have food. So that's nice. That is quite nice. Yeah. I also like how big of a, like, F you it is to everyone who was like, well, stick this new black woman on the agricultural committee. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, I'm gonna take this food and push it somewhere else. I'm gonna take your bowl assignment and I'm gonna feed people you don't care about with it. (laughs) (laughs) My district will prosper whether you like it or not. Uh, I know that's a big like you want to (laughs) fight and she pulled it off she's got some like big dick energy fam (laughs) alright so she's also on the veteran affairs committee and then in some house politics she supported Hale Boggs as the house majority leader And then she was subsequently assigned to the Education and Labor Committee, which is where she had wanted to be from the beginning. she has a degree in 
Early childhood education. Exactly. She's Fuck already an demon. expert on the subject. This one's been running kindergartens for like years. Yeah, and instead it took her supporting some other guy to actually get the assignment. Uh, like that's imagine Congress you're for you. a kindergarten teacher and you show up and they put you on the agricultural committee. <laughs> No shade, but I, I don't think she'd ever been on a farm. Wait, no, she grew up on a farm. So, but still. But Brooklyn. she spent her adult life working in kindergartens and preschools. <laughs> I feel like that overrules growing up on a farm in Barbados. <laughs> you know they didn't care about her childhood. <laughs> they had no way of knowing that. I hate men. Uh, yeah. Ooh, speaking of that, Shirley only hired women for her office, and half of them were black. That's actually impressive that she found enough women who, like, were the correct level of qualified for those positions, because there yeah. weren't that many back then. Yeah, and one of the big things is that she said she faced more discrimination for her gender than her race, which we've, I think we've talked about that. Yeah. Obviously. But that was what she did. And in 1971, she was a founding member of the Congressional Black Caucus and also of the National Women's Political Caucus. So, you know, hidden both of those. Oh, and here's a bit of more congressional drama. So, also in 71. With Bella Abzug, uh, another representative, she had a bill for ten billion in childcare services by 1975. So this didn't work. Yeah, well, I could have told you that. <laughs> yeah, but it led to a less expensive uh, bill that was called the Comprehensive Child Development Bill, which passed the House, it passed the Senate, and then it got to President Nixon. He vetoed it. Didn't oh, he? of course he vetoed it. And you want to know uh, why? Because he's Nixon. Yeah, well, that. Due to, quote, fiscal irresponsibility, administrative unworkability, and family weakening implications. I'm scowling. You can't yeah. see me, but. So apparently, the idea that we could help children who don't have the best living situations was just completely detrimental to the nuclear family unit, I guess. You know what apparently wasn't detrimental to the nuclear family unit? What, guns? Guns. <laughs> Military spending. <laughs> Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, how many fathers died in Vietnam? And you know what? The widows probably could have really used this program. Oh, absolutely. But alas, because that's what Nixon does. But too busy wiretapping people to like do something actually decent. Yeah, yeah. And opening China, that was a good thing. But like, that's the only one. Oh, no, no. He formed the EPA. That was the other good thing. Oh, I forgot that was him. I know, right? It doesn't go with the rest of his It's legacy. so out of character. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, besides those two things, he was the worst. Okay, so, 72, she stirred up a bit of controversy 
So we all know George Wallace, who is the super racist Alabama governor, who, yeah, he was really into segregation. He once physically stood in front of a school so that black children could not enter it. When he was told he couldn't run for governor, he had his wife run in his place, and she actually had cancer that he didn't tell her about during that. Wait, how did she have, how did he have the ability not to tell her she had cancer? You know how doctors in the past were super sexist and kind of still are? Oh my god. <laughs> he told her husband and said, you should probably tell your wife. And then he proceeded to not do that so that he could stay governor by proxy. I know, this isn't even relevant to the story. I just need to give you some context on who George Wallace is. I knew who George Wallace was, but I didn't know that. And I am physically disgusted. You should be. Like, I just made a bunch of guttural noises because I couldn't form words for a second there. I know, I heard them. They, like this information, was not pleasant. <laughs> so, George Wallace gets shot, and Shirley goes to visit him in the hospital. And naturally, this was controversial because of who he is as a person. Yeah, I, I get being a good person and all, but like, you don't need to go visit George Wallace in the hospital. Yeah, side note, the shooting wasn't even like politically motivated. Yeah, he was a dick. I'm sure someone just wanted to shoot him. Oh, no, no. The assassin just wanted to be famous. Oh, those are the worst kind. I know. Like, this was his backup plan, too. He's like, I considered Nixon, but he seemed a bit hard to get to. That's how we lost Robert Kennedy. God. <laughs> he could have been president. <laughs> he would have been great. Anyway. I went through a Robert Kennedy phase in high school. I know a lot about him. <laughs> Who didn't? I feel like normal people didn't know that. <laughs> Gross. Yep. Okay, so Wallace does actually like pay her back, so to speak. So when she was trying to get through the house her bill to give domestic workers minimum wage, he managed to get enough Southern Congress votes to help her push it through. So, oh, yeah. that was nice of him. Yeah, like the one nice thing he did ever in his life. I still hate him. Oh, yeah. That doesn't outweigh e everything else. Nothing will ever outweigh not telling your wife she has cancer. Mm-hmm. Just so that she can be governor of Alabama so he can be in charge just by being there. Like, not allowing schools to integrate was really bad, but at least those were like faceless victims. He was actively hurting his own wife, who he was like supposed to love. He lived with her. Like, yeah, he saw her every day and didn't tell her this. God. And all to be governor of Alabama. For okay. like a little bit longer. Like if his wife had gotten treatment, she probably could have been his wife for like a lot more years. Mm -hmm. Probably longer than he he could have been governor still. That sucks. Yeah. But back to Shirley. Yeah, sorry. I just I'm really mad about this. Oh, you should be. <laughs> so, 1972 is when she launches her campaign for the presidency. 
and she calls for a quote bloodless revolution at the dnc which was coming up those never go well uh yeah but i like the i like the concept but like name one that worked (laughs) i'll wait I mean, there was the time Czechoslovakia broke up. That worked out fine. That wasn't really a revolution, though. That wasn't, yeah. That was more just people realizing that the arbitrary lines drawn after the World Wars were kind of stupid. Fair. All right. Well, (laughs) Shirley was the first African-American to run for a major party nomination. She was also the first woman to run for the Democrat nomination. Uh, some lady named Margaret Chase Smith had ran for the Republican nomination in 64. When are we and doing that episode? Do you want to? Kind of. All right. Look her up. Okay. I'm going to put it on the list. Okay. <laughs> now, Shirley was a representative of the people. She said, quote, I am not the candidate of black America, although I am black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement in this country, although I am woman and equally proud of that. I am the candidate of the people, and my presence before you symbolizes a new era in American political history. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a great quote. She seems to be full of good quotes. Oh, she has a bunch. So her campaign had no money. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely none. Uh, and by none, I mean they only spent about 300000 which even back then was not impressive. Yeah. I can't see that being impressive in, like, any exactly. presidential campaign. So she wasn't taken seriously. She was ignored by the Democratic establishment, which, what else is new? Yeah. And she was unsupported by her male colleagues. Yeah. Yep. So, she actually had a lot to say about how she felt unsupported by members of the black community in her run for president. So, quote, when I ran for Congress, when I ran for president, I met more discrimination as a woman than for being black. Men are men. And she also blamed, like, the black matriarchal thing, saying that, she thought that they think I am trying, quote, they think I am trying to take power from them. Uh, the black man must step forward, but that doesn't mean the black woman must step back. So this was kind of a back and forth between her and the community. However, her husband, Conrad, was super supportive. Yes, we stand. Yes. He I love said- it when the husbands are supportive. <laughs> He said, quote, I have no hang-ups about a woman running for president. And he even physically supported her in that he acted as her bodyguard until... (laughs) Yeah, it took three attempts on her life for Secret Service to finally appoint some people. That's upsetting. It is. But also, we stand her husband so hard right now. I know, right? (laughs) Because that means that this man stood there through three attempts on her life and was like, I'm going to continue standing in front of her <laughs> while this happens. I'm still totally on board, honey. <laughs> like, that is love. See, 
This is a good husband. Take note, George Wallace. Take note like all men. (laughs) She campaigned or received votes in 14 states, which is pretty cool. The most votes was in the California primary, because California. Yeah. Hey. Hey. (laughs) And the highest percentage was in North Carolina. Is there a reason? I don't know. All told, she won 28 delegates. However, it's not nothing. Wait, wait, wait. It gets better. So, oh yeah, she was also supported by the National Organization for Women, which included, you know, Betty Friedman and Gloria Steinem. Look, a crossover. <laughs> you just love your crossovers. I do. <laughs> uh, she was the first woman to appear in a U.S. presidential debate. Okay, so when it you know, actually came oh. time to count the delegates, the Democratic winner was uh, McGovern, Senator McGovern. I don't and, know that name, which means he wasn't president. Oh, absolutely not. He ran against Nixon and Nixon run, won. Gross. I know. But he was not super popular because she just, yeah, he wasn't. So there was a lot of protest votes <laughs> where once they realized that uh, McGovern was going to get the majority, a lot of the delegates just said, all right, well, surely. Isn't that what everyone was hoping would happen with Trump? Exactly. <laughs> but like this, it didn't make a difference. But she still ended up with 152 votes. Damn, girl! I know! 23 of them were from Ohio, where she hadn't even been on the ballot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so all told, she was in fourth place. You know what? That's really impressive. Yeah! She did better than, like, Marco Rubio did when he ran for president. He's, like, Speaker of the House or something for, like, five years. Exactly. I just spent the whole time thinking about Tulsi Gabbard's one delegate. I forgot about that, even. (laughs) There was a surprising number of memes about it. Uh, And yet you didn't know the Michaela Maroney meme. I mean, these were memes from, like, Two years ago. You tried to show me a meme from like five years ago. Honestly, it might have been like the 2012 Olympics that meme was from. I don't even remember anymore. You tried to show me a 2012 meme? When was Gabby Douglas in the Olympics? That's when that meme is from. It might have been 2012. (laughs) (laughs) Why did I remember that meme? I don't know. Okay, well, uh, later when she was talking about her run, she said that she ran for office, quote, in spite of hopeless odds, to demonstrate the sheer will and refusal to accept the status quo. So, snaps to that. Nice. Unfortunately, you know, she wasn't president, but she went back to her job as a representative in Congress. 1977, she's elected the secretary of the House Democrat Caucus. Damn. Yeah. And she had a lot of, uh, in terms of her political opinions, her goals were to improve life for inner city residents. She also opposed the draft, because, you know, 
the draft. Yeah. Jeez. Don't you love that people were like the draft is sexist instead of abolishing the draft? They just added women. Yeah. Well, that was would have been one of the consequences of the Equal Rights Amendment. But yeah, but this happened like not that long ago because you and me or I was a little bit too old to be enlisted in the draft already. It happened when I was like nineteen. Oh frick! Which means about that you, that. yeah, you probably were actually because you're like you're younger than me. <laughs> I don't think so. Because it, really. well, it became a thing. Everyone became auto enlisted when they turned eighteen, but I was already past eighteen. Okay, now I don't have to look up if I'm in the draft. Okay. <laughs> anyway, she supported spending increase on education, healthcare, social services, and she also supported you know spending less money on the military. Things never change. Yeah. Yeah. Military industrial complex is expensive, fam. Yeah. So she also worked to revoke the Internal Security Act of 1950. And this was an act that required registration for any communist organizations. So classic McCarthyism, which had somehow stuck around till almost the 80s. You love to see it. Mm hmm. She was, of course, against the Vietnam War and the expansion of weapons. Oh, Vietnam. Vietnam. Yeah. In the Carter administration, she called for better treatment of Haitian refugees. With so, the Carter administration, she might have actually gotten it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, unfortunately, in 1977, she gets divorced. No, but we stand him so hard. We do stand him, but it didn't work out. Oh, that's so sad. Maybe he was that disappointed she didn't become president. Oh, that one hurt. I know, but okay. She remarried later that year to Arthur Hardwick Jr. Wait, what? Yeah, this was fast. Something <laughs> happened there. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, he was a former New York Assembly member, uh, so they had worked together, and a current liquor store owner. So I don't know what that says about Shirley and how they knew each other, but whatever. I'm not going to look too deep into that, but I want <laughs> everyone to know that I have opinions. <laughs> then there's some more tragedy. So they're married, and then in 82... Hardwick is injured in a car crash, and Shirley was also so dissatisfied with liberal politics in the Reagan revolution that she retired from Congress. Also, yeah, I can't see that girl having done a good job in the Reagan era. No. She would not have enjoyed that. No. So she went to get, go take care of her injured husband instead and he unfortunately dies in 86 so less than ideal yeah yeah but after her retirement she went back to education but this time with older people Ooh. yeah she became the purrington chair of all women mount holyoke college she founded the national congress of black women she gave speeches at over 150 colleges. 
That's a lot of colleges. I know. I haven't even seen 150 colleges. She told students, yeah, she told students to avoid polarization and intolerance. Quote, if you don't accept others who are different, it means nothing that you've learned calculus. Which, yeah. <laughs> As someone who's taught calculus, I feel that on a deep personal level. <laughs> you heard it here. Interpersonal acceptance is more important than high-level math. I would like to agree. <laughs> As a former calculus TA who had more than one boy try to tell me I was wrong about a calculus problem. I would As like you were to teaching agree. them? As I was teaching them. <laughs> Have you ever been corrected while actively explaining something? <laughs> Oh, it takes up so much time in a lesson too when you have to actively be like, "No, I'm right." <laughs> Let's pause so I can fight this boy, and then we'll get back. Like actually, <laughs> so Shirley's continuing her engagement of minority groups in local politics. In the 80s, she campaigned for Jesse Jackson's presidential election. 1990, she helps form the African American Women for Reproductive Freedom. And then in 91, she retires in Florida. In 93, she's inducted in the National Women's Hall of Fame, which she deserved it. Yeah. And then the end of our story. On January 1st, 2005, she dies after suffering some strokes, and the inscription on her vault reads, Unbought and unbossed. Of course it does. Of course it does. <laughs> so there's a few things about her legacy. The next month, in February 2005, there was a documentary film about her campaign. Can I guess the name? Yeah. It was, it, it, was, it was exactly. It was unbought and unbossed. Yep. God, I'm gonna have to think of an episode title with those words in it, aren't I? Absolutely. It's gonna take me like 20 minutes. I'm not gonna think of the episode titles. You could copy one of her biography's titles, which was called Shirley Chrisom, Catalyst for Change. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. This, you know that this... So this was by this... This was in 2014. It was by Brooklyn College history professor Barbara Winslow. You know she must have been like so done with your, <laughs> those words. <laughs> but yeah, this was the first like adult biography written about her. Like apparently there had been some like children's versions, but this was like uh, I love a good children's biography. They make people sound so nice. They do. <laughs> Oh, like when I was like ten, I read read a children's biography of Walt Disney, and I like low-key idolized him for like a hot minute there. And then Aww. finally, someone told me that he was like anti-Semitic, and I was very disappointed. I know, <laughs> but I did go around my Hebrew school talking about Walt. I dressed as Walt Disney at one point in that goddamn <laughs> Hebrew school, <laughs> and they let you. No one said anything. <laughs> They didn't want to kill your dreams. For real. 
I borrowed my friend's brother's suit. I like drew on the mustache. I did the whole thing. <laughs> Probably looks a good bit like Hitler, honestly. Okay. Anyway, Shirley's speech called for the Equal Rights Amendment in 1970 is listed as one of the top 100 speeches of the 21st century. And there was a lot of speeches in that decade, so it's pretty Wait. impressive. Wait. Said 21st century. It must have been the 20th century. Okay. Can't believe <laughs> that these notes are written wrong. Who wrote this? Was it by any chance you? How dare you? <laughs> In 2021, which is this year. That is this year. Yeah, Kamala Harris wore a purple dress during her inauguration, which was partly in Shirley Chrisom's honor. So, was apparently purple like Shirley, her color or something? Shirley apparently worn purple very often during her campaign. <laughs> so, and was she was also, you know, a major influence on women of color in politics. So, she was a big inspiration for Kamala Harris. So, when she was inaugurated as the first female vice president, you know, she paid homage. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. She was, of course, also portrayed in Mrs. America, which we still have not seen. And you know what? My family's gonna text me about how I haven't watched the show again when, when this episode comes out, just like they did when Gloria Steinem came out. Great, great. At least that'll be a what? less disturbing message than I have them. <laughs> yeah. But you know what, family? I'm not gonna watch it anytime soon. I'm in grad school now. <laughs> If I don't have time to watch my telenovelas, I don't have time to watch Mrs. America. I barely finished the most recent season of The Flash before school started. No other TV's <laughs> happening anytime soon. <laughs> I'm assuming it wasn't worth it. It wasn't. I don't know why I'm still watching this show, but I'm not gonna <laughs> stop, I don't think. <laughs> like, I watch it out of spite, but I don't know who I'm spiting. That's the power of the CW. They suck <laughs> you in. <laughs> I mean, I watched all of Arrow, so... Oh, you had to. <laughs> and probably when the new season of Supergirl comes out, I'll watch that too. I need to catch up on Supergirl. You know the one I still actively enjoy, though? Legends of Tomorrow. It's so good. <laughs> Any no show right to be so good. that has Genghis Khan riding on an electric scooter <laughs> is gold. It's so random. <laughs> so good. <laughs> they just took the reject characters from all the other shows and put them together. <laughs> it makes me so happy. <laughs> anyway, back to Shirley Chrisom. She wrote two autobiographies. One in 1970, which was called Unbought and Unbossed. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I couldn't have guessed that. <laughs> And another in 1973, which was called The Good Fight. I, I wonder how long it took for her to come up with another name. <laughs> she should have had one being named Unbought in the other. <laughs> the other Unbossed. Yeah. <laughs> so, we're going to have our quote wall. Okay, then it's my turn, even though we've been recording for an hour already. Oh, darn it. This is going to be so... I'm gonna have to edit this. Have fun editing me after two full days of work, a glass oh. of wine, eating a burrito at 7.30 at night. 
All right. Quote, when morality comes up against profit, it is seldom that profit loses. This yeah. is still applicable. Sad. Yep. The emotional, sexual, and physiological stereotyping of females begins when the doctor says it's a girl. For real. Mm-hmm. And if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Wait, I love I that. I know, right? <laughs> Can I put that on my wall? Yes. <laughs> I, I want to put that on my desk print at work. That. Yeah. <laughs> the desk is really empty. I might put that on. I might like get a nice print of that and put it up. <laughs> Do you think the guy I share an office with would mind? <laughs> Be like, listen, I'll take it down, but only if you give me a five-star review on iTunes. <laughs> yes, blackmail the man who I have to spend the next five years sharing a small room with. There you go. <laughs> Alright, so that's Shirley. Sam, what horrifying hyperfixation did you have this week? Okay, so I didn't want to tell you about, like anything related to my work which is the only thing i've used brain power on for the last few days so i kind of had to scramble last minute fair but i'm sure you didn't want to hear about healthcare software no if you ever tell me about healthcare software i will fall asleep oh um, cool okay i'm assuming you don't want to hear about like how cancer metastasizes either so sure it's depressing honestly not that bad oh okay um, Except for one time my sister had like, or my brother-in-law had a bump on her for on his forehead and my sister made some comment about like how she was worried that it was like a bump from somewhere else that like had gone through the bloodstream and ended up in his forehead and I was like, oh, that's exactly how cancer metastasizes, which was the wrong thing to say. Because then my sister started freaking out and thinking that it was metastasized cancer and I was like, no, that's not what I meant. Oh my god. Okay, but back to... <laughs> what I'm talking about. So do you know the history of the guillotine? Oh, <laughs> I know a little bit, but I'm sure I don't know any of the details you will tell me. <laughs> yeah, so I was curious. Well, I didn't know what to do. So I googled what happened in history today. <laughs> to just like get some inspiration. I found out that we are um, a couple days away from the 229th anniversary of King Louis the 16th being arrested. And that made me think about guillotines, and here we are. Of course. <laughs> so I looked up the history of the guillotine, and it's actually very interesting because while the name guillotine dates back to the French Revolution in the 1790s, the machine of a guillotine actually dates back to the Middle Ages. Um, huh. There was a beheading device called a plank that was used in Germany and Flanders during the Middle Ages, which was a sliding axe known as a Halifax gibbet, which more or less lopped off your head the same way a guillotine does. Cool. Um, also, the French guillotine was very likely inspired by this device as well as a Renaissance era, uh, a Renaissance era menea from Italy and the notorious Scottish Maiden, which were both torture and execution devices. And between the two claimed the lives of about 120 people between the 16th and 18th centuries. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so I heard the legend that the guillotine was adopted because it was supposedly 
more humane. That's my next point. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was originally developed as a more humane execution method. Was it? Um, well, yes, because before this, the way they would execute people was they would take an axe or a sword and try and cut off their head. And like, that's real easy to mess up. Yeah. And get like real painful. Well, like the guillotine, you drop that blade and there's like quick, clean cut. All right. Like beheading sucks. Don't behead anyone. But if you're going to behead someone, like the guillotine is a nicer way to do it. All right. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> but the origins of the French guillotine and what we know as the guillotine does date back to late 1789 when Dr. Joseph Ignace Guillotine proposed the French government adopt a gentler method of execution. The man was actually personally very against the death penalty. However, he thought that if they were going to do it anyway, he wanted it to be like not a sword to the back of your head. I guess. <laughs> um, and he actually, it's believed, like people say that he designed the guillotine, but he didn't. He just oversaw the development of the first prototype. The man who actually designed the machine was a French doctor named Antoine Louis, um, and mm -hmm. it was built by a German harpsichord maker named Tobias Schmidt. However, huh. the device ended up with the name guillotine, and that was very much the horror of its inventor who like tried real hard to get the name changed. <gasps> Poor guy. <laughs> and the guillotine claimed its first victim in April 1792. And pretty much from that moment on, Guillotine, the man, tried to distance himself from the machine, um, especially when the 1790s hysteria of like the French Revolution came along. And at one point, his family even tried to petition the French government to ch change the name of the machine in like the early, early 19th century, but the government was like, nah, fam. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah. And so pretty much for the 1790s guillotines were a major spectator event everyone ah. would come to like the town square during the reign of terror and watch enemies of the french revolution get beheaded all right well again what else were they doing it was the past <laughs> some people even went so far as to complain that the machine was too quick and clinical to be entertaining oh my god <laughs> <laughs> That's so dark. Right? But, like, people came from all over Paris to the Palais de Revolution to watch the guillotine do its work. And there are songs, jokes, and poems from that era all about the machine. Oh my god. <laughs> Spectators could even buy souvenirs, um, including programs listing the names of the victims. <laughs> or even a quick bite to eat in the area. Uh, there was a restaurant called Cabaret de la Guillotine. <laughs> Why is that so funny? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, people made a lot of jokes about this. And while the fascination with the guillotine kind of went down near the end of the 18th century, the public beheadings went on until 1939 in France. You want to hear something that's going to make you uncomfortable? Oh, absolutely. The guillotine was a popular children's toy. What? Children often attended the guillotine executions, 
And at some point, someone started making miniature guillotines for the home. And during the 1790s, parents gave their children a two foot tall replica of a guillotine that had the blade and everything. And kids could use this to this fully operational guillotine to decapitate dolls or even small rodents. What? <laughs> Near the end of the 18th century, towns started banning these toys because they were scared they would make kids vicious. And I would like to say that nowadays people say that video games will make you into a serial killer. Try having a toy guillotine. <laughs> There's just so much I have tried to wrap my mind around. They took the kids to the execution. <laughs> the kids loved it so much that they wanted a replica of the execution device. Parents bought that, and then they were encouraged to decapitate small rodents. Yeah. France, fam. The reign of terror was a time. Yeah. I um, was gonna make a joke about how I wanted like guillotine earrings, but now I, I kinda don't. <laughs> I mean, novelty guillotines were also found on upper class dinner tables where they were used to cut bread and vegetables. Okay, but that's kinda funny. <laughs> I kind honestly I read that and I was like, I kinda want a novelty guillotine for my dinner table. <laughs> Power move. Can you cut me a piece of bread? <laughs> Can I? Ah, <laughs> oh, but even better, the guillotine operators became national celebrities. Oh my god. There were two big families that like became the guillotine operators. There was the Sanson family, which served as state executioners from 1792 to 1847. And they were the ones who were responsible for killing King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. And then after them came the Dibler family, Louis and Anatoly, a father and son pair who combined tenure extended from 1879 to 1939. And people would often go through the streets chanting the Sanson and Dibler's names. Oh my god. Um, also, the clothing that the executioners would wear on the scaffolds often became major fashion trends that like all the big clothes houses and Paris would try and replicate. What was everyone on in the Paris Reign of Terror? <laughs> Who knows, fam? Also, the criminal underworld of Paris had like a strange, morbid fascination with the executioners, and many gangsters and hoodlums had tattoos that with the slogan, My head goes to Diabler. <laughs> and then, on top of all of that that I just said, Scientists conducted experiments on the heads of the condemned. Because <laughs> pretty much from the beginning of the guillotine's use, spectators kind of noticed that for a couple seconds after death, the head seemed to like still be able to do things. <laughs> and so around 1793, uh, assistant executioner slapped the face of a victim's head. <laughs> and... Spectators claimed that they could see the cheeks flush in anger. <laughs> and so doctors then started trying to see if they could prove this. At one point, a doctor asked a condemned man to try to blink or leave one eye open after the execution to prove that they could still move. And then some tried to yell the deceased's name or uh, to see if they'll get a reaction. 
reaction. Others tried to expose the head to flame and ammonia to see if they would react. So and, messed up. Yeah. In 1880, so this is like post-Reign of Terror, a doctor named Dassy de Liniers even had blood pumped into the head of a guillotined child murderer to find out if it would come back to life and speak. That's not how anything works. It's not, but it's also disgusting. Yeah. Uh, uh, isn't there a legend about how there was some like scientist who was decapitated? And he's like, count my blinks. <laughs> I did not read about that, but I would believe it. <laughs> the experiments were put to an end in the 20th century. Oh. Uh, because, you know, they should have been. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but similar studies are actually to this day done on rats to figure, and that's how we found that you can have consciousness for about four seconds after decapitation. Cool. Now I'm uh, imagining those miniature guillotines again. Oh. God. And we complain about video games. <laughs> did you know the guillotine was used for executions in Nazi Germany? I did not. Yes. While it is most famously associated with the French Revolution, it was probably even more prolific in the Third Reich. Was there a way that they didn't kill people in the Third Reich? No. <laughs> it was a state method of execution from the 1930s on, and there were 20 machines placed in cities all across Germany. That's dark. Yeah. According to Nazi records, which you know were meticulous, uh. the guillotine <laughs> was used to execute 16,500 people between 1933 and 1945. Wow. Most of whom were resistance fighters and political dissidents. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. The last known use of a guillotine was in 1977. Cool. What a... was Chrissy? <laughs> what was Shirley doing in 1977? Well, the... <laughs> well, the last person to be guillotined in France was a convicted murderer named Hamida Deja Duby. While they met their end in 1977, the machine was still technically the French like official execution style until 1981, when Fr the French finally just abolished capital punishment for good. <laughs> After 189 years of guillotining. <laughs> and that, fam, is the history of the guillotine. It was so much weirder than I thought it was gonna be. Right? <laughs> it was all over the place. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to think about this. Sam, what did you learn today? I learned about Shirley, who is my my girl, <laughs> <laughs> and her standable husband, and the fact that the Congress are such a-holes that they put a kindergarten teacher on the Agricultural Committee. <laughs> <laughs> a kindergarten teacher from Brooklyn. <laughs> <sighs> like it's just unnecessary. What did you and learn, it Ellen? Took like her like politicking. I know to actually uh, get on the committee she was most qualified for. And you know what? I bet there were a bunch of like white men who had no experience with children on that committee before her. Oh, of course, yeah. Nick. <laughs> made a lot of noises this episode. I feel bad for you editing it. What did you learn today, Ellen? 
Oh, I learned so many disturbing facts. <laughs> Most disturbing is the fact that they sold toy <laughs> toy guillotines to children. I know, right? It's so messed up. <laughs> I learned that in the same year that Shirley Chrisom was elected secretary of the House Democrat Caucus, France executed its last person with a guillotine. Okay, but like, how many like small children do you think accidentally murdered their siblings? Or not uh, even accidentally, like purposely murdered their siblings with a guillotine? So like, a lot of people just died back then. But like, you would know if it was a child <laughs> murdering their sibling with a guillotine. Because <laughs> that was my first thought when I read child-sized guillotine was like little kids are assholes <laughs> someone's gonna die yeah <laughs> you know what i don't know what the number is but i'm sure whatever it is it is too damn high <laughs> god i can't believe of the two of us i was the one to come into this episode with an execution style you know so insane i also learned that for some reason the nazis liked them well, I mean, Nazis liked any way they could kill people. Yeah, oh, God. They're a big fan of, like, the killing. <laughs> and I no longer want guillotine earrings now, after this. <laughs> I mean, they were a morbid thing to want in the first place, honestly. Yeah, but I do kind of want, like, a decorative, like, bread slicer guillotine. <laughs> Honestly, same. I know. <laughs> so that's what I've learned, and this will haunt me in my sleep. Good. Cool. <laughs> so, if you enjoyed this, you can find us on Instagram at KS Podcast, on Twitter at underscore KS Podcast, or you can shoot us an email at KS Podcast21 at gmail.com and tell us your thoughts, feelings, or any ideas you have for future episodes. Also, we take all those things in five-star podcast reviews, <laughs> which we'd appreciate. I'm not sure when, but soon there will be a prize for giving us a five-star podcast review. We should I think, think of a prize. I, I'm working on something. Okay. So, if you write us one, there will be an unknown prize in the future. Ooh. We hope you enjoyed the chaos. <laughs> Safe travels. Bye-bye.